And as you're seated, would you pray with me? Lord, you are the great king, and we are gathered before you. And Lord, because of your greatness, because of your because you are inclined toward us graciously, because you love your people, we are in the position of not being in danger of offending you by asking too much of you, but just the opposite, of asking too little. And so, Lord, here, you know, at this hour, we would pray that you would give us more than we could ever ask or imagine, that you would work through the reading and the preaching of your word by the Spirit in the hearts of the people gathered here this morning. Lord, to the end that we would not rely on things so pitiful as the competence of a preacher or even the competence of a listener, but instead we would rely on your Holy Spirit to take the word and place it in our hearts to apply it to those places that are cold, that they would be warmed at the fires of the gospel this morning. Lord, that you would reorient us, that you would reorient our priorities. In fact, that we would quit thinking of you as among the priorities of our life, but instead that you would sit at the center, that we would worship you, that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, be at work through the preaching of this word to that end, that you would get glory, that your people would be fed. Lord, that those who are here who may not know you would come to faith and that today would be the day of rejoicing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's been, as has been repeated so often, it's almost cliche, it's been a strange year. And, um, you know, one of the stranger kind of trends that took hold uh, during the COVID pandemic was the singing of sea shanties on social media. Um, you know, uh, it all started with a guy in Scotland named Nathan Evans, who better to sing a sea shanty than a guy in Scotland. And he posted a performance of an old seafaring song called The Wellerman on TikTok. And very quickly, this thing garnered over 65 million views around the world. It spawned hundreds of variations. It even created a whole new musical genre uh, that you're probably all well aware of called shanty talk. And, you know, as these things gain traction, you kind of have to step back and go, well, why this? You know, why this trend? Why weren't people pouring buckets of ice water over their heads or swallowing goldfish, but instead, you know, singing sea shanties? And the consensus seems to be that at the height of the pandemic, people became deeply hungry for connection. You know, the, the dangers of isolation, right, were, were deeply felt in, in the time of COVID. And, and, they, and people needed connection, but a connection of a certain kind, connection that acknowledged, you know, we're in this struggle together, but we're headed somewhere together. We haven't lost hope. And it turns out that nothing kind of fits the bill better for that frame of mind than a, than a good old sea shanty. Because sea shanties are sung by people under harsh conditions, under threatening conditions, usually because they've been pressed into a situation they didn't want to be in in the first place, kind of like COVID. And, you know, critically, uh, the structure of these songs, the way they're put together and tempo and melody and lyrics are designed for that connection. They're designed for participation. It's, the theory is that the song Shanty actually comes from the song chant, or from the word chant, 
You know, so you may not be able to sing, you may not be able to carry a tune, but you can sure chant together, right? At least that. So even if you weren't much of a singer, anyone could join in. Everyone could join in. You could find connection, commiseration, and communion, and a little bit of hope that bad as things are now, we're headed to a better place, right? Well, there, of course, are times and occasions where um, speaking doesn't quite cut it. Silence doesn't cut it. You, you've just got to sing. And, and, and we've come to one of those places in the Bible, in Exodus 15. And, and I, I want to think about, you know, why this song is in the Bible in this particular place. I want to look at uh, this morning what prompts this song. I want to think about what propels the song. And then I want to think about the place it takes us to as a people. Um, so for starters, you know, what prompts it? What, why at this particular chapter in the story of what the Lord has done and is doing among his people, is there a song? Songs are always prompted by something, right? They're birthed out of some kind of experience. You know, whether you, you've fallen in love or fallen on hard times, uh, it's always the case that there's some event, something has happened that's been critical to the creation of a song. I've, I've been binging this McCartney 321 series on Hulu. Anybody watch that? Um, that's basically the whole thing. It's just Paul McCartney sitting there in front of a soundboard with Rick Rubin talking about what birthed the songs of the Beatles, all the stories behind what got them written in the first place. Well, in fact, that is the case here. There would be no Exodus 15 song were it not for an Exodus 14 salvation, right? That's what prompted the song. And that, that, that whole thing is summarized in dramatic fashion at the end of chapter 14, which we looked at last week, where it says this, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. A great salvation, and then song. Deliverance, doxology. That's the pattern. And in fact, I mean, you know, I, I got to thinking about it. Church is a place of song, is it not? I mean, it's, it's kind of the one gathering where, you know, just a very substantial part of us getting together here week in and week out is singing. You know, you don't show up at a restaurant and then everybody sing together, generally speaking. You don't go to the movie theater and after the previews and before the movie break into song together, but we do that here. And, and, it, it, and, and you got to ask the question, well, why do we do that? Well, we do that for this reason. Because there's been salvation and then there must be song. There's been deliverance. There must be doxology. In other words, we don't just sing because we're supposed to or because we're really into the tradition or we, like, or we come here to watch other people perform. We always sing in response to the great thing the Lord has done that we're always prompted by a great salvation. And, and you know, that'll kind of get you thinking about what we're doing here when we sing, right? I hope it does. It gives you a whole new perspective on, on worship, because it means to not sing or to sing a little half-heartedly, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, have you lost sight of the greatness of your salvation? You know, are, are you being prompted? Do you feel like I, the thing I must do is sing praises to my God and my King? Arguably, the greatest hymn writer of all time was Charles Wesley. Uh, nobody's made a full 
accurate account of how many songs he's actually written, but they know that he's, he wrote at least 6,000 hymns. Um, and, you know, not least of which, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, Jesus Lover of My Soul, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, and, of course, you know, with someone that prolific, the Methodists decided we've got to put a hymnal together to collate all these. They're amazing. And his brother, John, wrote an introduction to the hymnal uh, with really a wonderful, you know, uh, I think very applicable thing. I'd commend you to look it up on the Internet and just read it before you come to church. It's all full of instructions about how we ought to engage in singing at church. But, but among other things he says is this. Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. And above all, this is his concluding thought, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve of here and reward when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. Now, you might have noticed, you know, at the end of chapter 14, it was, everyone, it was said that everyone believed in the Lord and also in his servant Moses, and yet... When you get to the song, Moses isn't mentioned once in this song. Not even once. Because why? Because it's a song of praise to the Lord alone. It's, it's what Wesley describes in his instructions. It's song with an eye to God in every word they sing. Right? So you don't turn to Exodus 15 and read that after crossing the Red Sea, there were high fives all around. Right? Um, or that Moses, you know, was presented with a plaque for excellent leadership skills. There is instead an outburst of praise, entirely and exclusively to the Lord as king, as the one who's gotten victory over Pharaoh and his army. And, and again, in light of the great thing the Lord has done, you have to ask the question, could it have been any other way? It would have been wrong to not sing at this point, right? You can't, you can't not sing here. It got me thinking, you know, corny as they are, I mean, the old musicals, you know, from the 40s and the 50s, they got this exactly right. You know, I mean, someone falls madly in love, they met the, 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 the person of their dreams, and, and, and it goes right into song. You know, because it's almost not right for it not to go into song, it's almost not right for it to go into a little tap dance as well. Because a great thing has happened. Because they've been prompted, overwhelmed by this great love. You have to sing. And look, even aside from the movies, I mean, when great things happen, when earth-shattering events occur, like when um, the United States won, the, won World War II in Europe, what happened? People pour into the streets. They stay up all night. They sing at the top of their lungs. They raise, raise their glasses together. They kiss total strangers because they've been prompted to praise because of a great victory of what's already happened. So Israel's experiencing that kind of moment right here because the Lord's delivered on such a great salvation. And all of that is what prompts them to sing. And then the song is really propelled in praise to a great Savior. 
So the song goes very deep on not only the facts of salvation, but also on giving glory to and exploring the character of the one who's facilitated it. And certainly, it's celebrating what the Lord has done for Israel in the here and now, but, but you know, I want to notice, especially in verse 2, how much they sing about how it has benefited their own hearts. You, there's, there's this connection, right? This connection between the greatness of their redemption from the Lord and the depth of their relationship with the Lord. It's, it's very personally expressed. It's warmly expressed in saying how the Lord has not only become my salvation, but right now, right here, he's my strength. He's my song. You know, and it, and it might seem like a disconnect that right on the heels of that, right on the heels of saying he's my strength and my song, he's become my salvation, this is my God, I will praise him, he's my father's God, I'll exalt him. And then immediately it says the Lord is a man of war. Uh, uh, overthrowing adversaries, consuming enemies like stubble, shattering the enemy, piling up waters, congealing the heart of sea, blowing the wind, covering up his enemies, sinking them down to the bottom of the sea like lead. And, and, you know, you kind of go, what's this connection? How do you go from familiar warmth and, and, and the personal benefits of my heart to sort of celebrating the warlike ways of the Lord? Well, I think it's in this way, that at, at the crucial point in the redemption, when the fight was on, Israel didn't fight. Israel didn't lift a finger. The Lord fought for them. They're, they're, in other words, they're not celebrating some amorphous general sense of protection, but they're grasping onto the personal experience of salvation. Personal. I, I should have been enslaved were it not for you liberating me. I should have been slain were it not for you defending me and protecting me. I should have been drowned were it not for you rescuing me. All of which prompts the question, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You know, there's this utter amazement by the, by the facts of the rescue, but also by the greatness of the Redeemer, that there's no other God that can be compared to this God in holiness and glory and power. But then, you know, you sort of step back and, you, you know, you got to hold up a second. You've got you to admit it's a bit of a weird question. It's a bit of a weird way to praise God, isn't it? Because it doesn't sound, let's be honest, exactly monotheistic. You know, why not just say, you're the only God? You're the greatest God. You are the great God. You know, but instead it says you're the greatest God above all other gods. Well, when you, when you start to look for this, you will notice this is a pattern in the Bible. God is readily and often praised in this kind of way, where you'll see people putting side by side all over the Bible these truths, the truth that there is only one true and living God, and at the same time that we are a people and live among a people who don't much believe that or live like that. We, we, live, in a, we live like there's other gods. We, we may not give all glory, lot, and honor to the river god, like the Egyptians do, but we might be giving it to the relationship god, or the retirement god, or the, the recreation god, or any, any other thing that we, that we imagine you know, that we attach our hearts to, imagining it will give us life and hope, you know, if only we give ourselves to that thing, to that God. And because we're that way, it's important to praise God in this way. 
not, not just generally, but, but with above all God's praise. To kind of, you know, bound up in this is the admission that, yeah, I, I give away the glory and the law and the honor. And, and when I really look at it, that's bitter. It hasn't delivered. It hasn't given me life. It's taken life. And, and Lord, you are above that. I've considered the false gods and the false promises that contend for my heart, and now I see clearly that you alone are majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Praising God in that way. Now, when you come to verse 12, you come to something of a tipping point. The song, as it does in several places, summarizes the Red Sea salvation event. It does, it does so here really with two words. Uh, those words are stretch and swallow. The Lord has stretched his hand, his right hand. He has act with, acted with intention. He has acted with intervention. He has exerted with power. And, and he, has, he has accomplished salvation by swallowing up the enemy. Those who imagined, I mean, what were the Egyptians doing? They were imagining they could steal salvation away. And God thwarted that thoroughly. But it's also at this point where the focus shifts away from, from from what God has done to what God will surely do. And, and this deserves a little bit of nerdy linguistic explanation. Give me 20 seconds on this. Um, I, I just want to tell you, I, I, I work very hard to not uh, get all of you, you know, I'm the weird one, I care about this stuff. But this is important, I'm gonna explain it. The translation we're reading from doesn't translate these verbs as future tense verbs, but instead as past tense verbs. So what we read earlier was, the Lord has led, he has redeemed, he has guided, so that the people have heard. But, but this linguistic thing that's going on here is worth our attention because the verbs in this sentence aren't, in fact, in the past tense. They're, they're not in the future tense. They're not in the present tense. Um, they're in the, the perfect tense. And, it, and it's very common in the Hebrew language to use the perfect tense in this particular way, to indicate future events that even though they've yet to come about, they are as good as done. And that's important because that is consistent with the character and the nature of the God who has been praised, who's being praised here. That he is perfectly faithful in the past and his faithfulness in the future is as good as done. So this song has two halves, what God has done already and what he will yet do, which is as good as done. So the hope expressed in the second half of the song isn't sort of rooted in this like, you know, uh, uh, wishing upon a star, the future's so bright I gotta wear shades. No, it's rooted in the conviction that the Father is utterly faithful. And that faithfulness is described here really richly in praising the Lord as one who leads and who guides in his unfailing love and in his strength. Of course, we know God leads. He's just done that. He's, he's done that. Um, he's taken them out of slavery. He's away from pursuing chariots through waters that have just swallowed up the enemy, out of slavery into freedom, out of death into life. But he's also, the, 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 the lyrics of the song here want to point out another dimension to this, that he's not only led, he's guided. And guiding is, is you know, similar, but not exactly the same. Guiding is leading, but with care. Guiding is leading, but with great help. Guiding is leading, but with sympathy. A good, a good guide will take into account the fact that you're not that great of a hiker. You know, will we'll help you along. We'll help you learn how to paddle. We'll, 
will, will not only just be in front of you so that you, it's up to you to keep up, but will we'll guide you along. There's, something, there's almost something of counseling in this, right? Coming alongside. So, so that it's not enough simply to say that his people have been led out so that the song prompted by a great salvation, propelled by praise to the Savior, moves people to an actual place as they're guided on, as they're guided in, as they're, as they're guided into what's called here God's holy abode. Just a fancy word for his house, where he lives. You know, so... And we need to take this in the most expansive sense. To speak of God's holy abode is not just to speak to a destination. It's really to speak to a destiny. That God's people are being led and guided, not merely down the road, but into something much richer, into actually, as we see the song develop, into relationship. Brought into the end for which they were made and called and formed as a people, that they would be God's holy people, dwelling with a holy God in God's place. And, you know, I want to notice something here. It's a little bit, it's actually somewhat subtle, but I think it's important because, you know, there's, in verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And then in verse 17, you know, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. And it prompts the question, I think, and I want to make the case. It prompts the question, who exactly are God's people? Who are they? Because as God's people are led and guided on, this other group emerges into the song. Israel is paraded before the nations. You hear about the nations trembling with fear at the sight of the Lord, at the sight of what the Lord has done for his people. And they are, they are shaking in their boots. There are no less than seven words to describe their fear in this short stanza. But I, I want to say if we've been paying attention to the flow of the text, if, we, if, you, if you had the privilege to hear last week's really excellent sermon, you will remember that Israel was described in exactly this way, just, just before this, as a trembling people, as a people, you know, quaking in their boots. They, they, were, they were struck with fear as Egypt bore down on them by the Red Sea in verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 10. And then something really significant happened. They saw. They, they, they bore witness to something. The text says Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord. You see, in seeing the great power that the Lord had used, they were changed from a people who were quaking in fear before Egypt to a people possessed now with reverent fear for the Lord. By what? By bearing witness to the great thing God had done. They had the fear of the Lord, what the Bible refers to famously as the beginning of wisdom. And I got to say, once you see the Lord do that for Israel, you cannot help but wonder, and I would say even begin to expect that he will surely do the same thing for the nations. Could it be that these nations now, you know, withering in awe and fear before Israel may in time come to be worshipers of Israel's God? Is that possible? Well, in fact, I I think it's not only possible, I think it's what the Lord is doing. I'd argue that verse 17 urges us to that 
frame of thinking toward the expectation that in time the nations will be taken from terror in the Lord to trust in the Lord when it says that Israel will go into the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Well, who are Abraham's descendants? Are they a specific little ethnic enclave of the religiously upright and perfectly obedient? Well, we already know we have yet to see a group like that. And I'm just going to, you know, spoil the plot for you. You will never see a group like that. In fact, the Lord, the people whom he has just brought through the Red Sea, he has already begun to bring in the nations. Back in chapter 12, verse 38, we were told that those led out of Egypt were a mixed multitude. Jews, but also Egyptians. Also people from the nations who did what? They saw. They saw what the Lord did and they believed. They went from from terrified fear to reverent fear. Of course, Paul says of this promise to Abraham in his letter to the Galatians that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall what? All the nations be blessed. Here's all the nations. We have a little snapshot here, but what may the Lord do? So as God's people parade before the nations, what a witness of redemption, right? Here's a people who didn't fight for their freedom, who didn't lift a finger for their freedom, wildly even fought with some ferocity against their own liberation. And yet the Lord led, guided, saved, rescued by grace through faith. What a picture, what a witness. What else would have the power to move you from desperate fear to dependent fear upon the Lord, reverent fear? And now they're not going to get, you know, you know, as they go, as they're led, they're not going to go just grab the land that's been promised to them, but as it's put in verse 17, God will bring them in. God will plant them. That, that's kind of a striking way to put taking possession of the place to which God is calling them because to be brought in means the Lord isn't breaking in from the outside. He is already on the inside. He's calling them to come on in to the place where he already is, into the place that, it is, that is his own, into relationship with him, into faith in him, to see that, indeed, as they sing here, there is no other God. You are the great God. That's why the place is called the Lord's abode. His sanctuary is house, the place his hands have established. He, it turns out, is glad to give them what he already owns, where he already is. And of course, there will be no shortage of drama involved in entering the land. Read on in Exodus and in Joshua, and you will see that story. But here's what's true of Canaan. Not only did it not belong to the Canaanites before Israel entered it, it doesn't even belong to Israel after they take it. It belongs to the Lord. That means they're not there by divine right. They are there by divine gift. And they will remain there um, it, and that place will always remain under divine ownership, right? So, so it isn't about real estate. It's about relationship. And it's about living in relationship with the Lord as his own people. And it's on that note that the song actually reaches its climax. And I, I, don't, I, I think it's hard to overstate the importance of verse 18. It's a seminal moment in the scriptures because this is the first place in the Bible that announces the kingdom of God. Now, one way to read it is like this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. But, but the, the way it ought to be read is the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord. No other gods. 
That is to say, the Lord will reign. Not Pharaoh, not Baal, not any of the gods reign, but that the Lord has demonstrated that he reigns now, he has reigned forever, and he will reign forever. Now, it's important to say claims to kingship are no small thing. Um, The most treacherous thing the early church ever did was to say simply, Jesus is Lord. Um, Sounds like no biggie. Rolls off the tongue, makes a good bumper sticker, refrigerator magnet. But to say Jesus is Lord is to say at the same time no one else is. It is to say that he rules and he reigns. He is in possession of all power. He is in possession of all things. And so when Christians said that, the Romans rightly understood this to be more than sloganeering. They understood it to be seditious. Uh, They took it to be a statement about the world and our place in it because every Roman coin had stamped on it the counter-assertion that in fact Caesar is Lord, that he's in control of history, that he must be given all glory, lot, and honor, that, you know, this is his realm. Uh, We live by his rule. The future is all about him. Uh, We're living in his world, and the rest of us are just paying rent. He will never give away what belongs to him, but will extract from your life whatever is necessary to sustain his rule. So to say Jesus is Lord, to say the Lord will reign forever and ever is to make the radical claim that he is king, that he is sovereign, that he will have the victory, and that he will countenance no rivals. So there's no more deeply penetrating claim than that because there's more going on here than, again, just stating the facts of the Lord's kingship. We also learn of how his kingly reign functions. And I want to say it is utterly shocking, scandalous. You know, the question is still out there, isn't it? Who is a God like you? Well, unlike the kings of the world and the gods of the world, the Lord exercises his power and his reign, not for his own benefit, but extends the divine prerogative to benefit others, especially the weak, especially the wounded, the sick and the sore, the outsider and the oppressed. He's acted in the interest, I mean, let's be clear, of an ethnic minority immigrant community undergoing economic exploitation, political oppression, enduring a state-sponsored campaign of genocide. That's Israel in Egypt. And yet, as they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, heard it in, in the most robust sense of hearing. You know, the rulers of the world hear the groaning of the oppressed all the time. And it is in one ear and out the other. The weak, the wounded, sick, and sore, that's probably because it's their fault. It's their bad karma. It's their station in life. They are where they need to be because it serves the greater cause of me and my kingdom. And certainly for the kings of the day, the groans of the oppressed was simply, you know, the white noise, the sound of the machinery and the gears turning necessary to maintaining societal order in my kingly position. That's the groans of the oppressed. But when the groans of the lowest of the low fall on the royal ear of Yahweh, he springs into action. He sympathizes. He exercises his kingly prerogatives and power to the end that he hears and he sees, and he remembers, and he acts in the interests of justice and the well-being of the people. People who aren't even looking for him. 
because he alone is king and is inclined toward the weak and the broken. There may be no more heartening words than these words forever and ever. There's more to celebrate than the Lord's victory over Egypt this time as if, you know, he, as if there's going to be another time and we're not so sure if he's going to win. He has the victory and the song says he will have all victory forever and ever because he's in possession of supremacy and sovereignty forever and ever. And it's at this point the song kind of looks like it ends as the saving events of the Red Sea are summarized again I think for the third time in the song, as if we'd forgotten. But in fact, you know, it moves toward uh, not just celebration, but celebration and community, uh, led by Miriam and the women. You know, the Lord has acted alone, but we respond as a worshiping community. And it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot here. More, you know, there's, I've had to edit this. I'd love to talk more about it. But the reference to Miriam as prophet, many think is, uh, you know, is to say that she was, in fact, the author of the song. You know, what she gave to her brother Moses to, to bring before all the people for worship. So, you know, in, in, in the way it's structured here, some have even said that verse 21 isn't really so much the last line of the song, but to the contrary, it's something like the opening stanza. You know, an invitation uh, initiated by the women uh, to, to, not, to the people of God not to sit back and watch others to perform, but to sing, to sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. In fact, this was very common in Israel that the women would get the party started by going out, singing and dancing with tambourines in celebration of the victory. So far from being, you know, sort of a separate little part of the song, or worse yet, a subordinate aspect of the song, Miriam and the women are leading the song. For all the people, in community, it's God's people. Because the Lord reigns forever and ever, loving us to the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, to his very own home. You know, I thought this week, as I was looking at this, about the, uh, the, the church father, Polycarp. I don't know if you've ever heard of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp <clears throat> was a second century bishop in Smyrna. He was a protege of the apostle John. Uh, he, he had great influence in, in the establishing of the church, he, uh, both men like Irenaeus and Tertullian. And he ministered faithfully well into his 80s. And it, it was in his 80s that he was arrested uh, for faithfully ministering the gospel uh, because he would bend the knee only to one king, to King Jesus. And, you know, maybe, maybe in what they imagined to be, you know, a little bit of charity toward him, the Roman authorities brought him before him and they said, you know, we'll give you a chance to recant. And here's what he is recorded to have said when he was given the opportunity to recant his faith. He said, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And with that, he was bound. He was stabbed with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. And then he himself was burned at the stake. And what I thought of this week was how his death was recorded. Um, it was recorded in this way. Polycarp was arrested by Herod when Philip of Tralles was high priest during the proconsulship of Stadius Quadratus, but while Jesus Christ was reigning as king forever. 
I, I don't know what you've been through, uh, where you are right now, and none of us knows what's coming. But we serve a great king who is reigning forever and ever, who has given a great salvation, who has secured a glorious future, and who is present and at work now to feed us at this table and to sustain us and to take us to himself. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I think we could probably look at a whole lot of our life just through the lens of asking the question, whatever else is going on, do we believe that Jesus Christ is reigning forever and ever? Lord, I thank you that, you know, you are faithful every week to bring us the word and to bring us to this table that would assure us of the truth of that, that would remind us, you know, because let's be honest, we are so prone to forget. We are so prone to diminish the greatness of your kingship and, and we're still, we're prone to elevate, you know, ourselves and imagine that somehow we can make a life for ourselves. And so you're good to bring us here, to feed us uh, with the word, to do what we prayed about before, you know, to, to really get into our hearts and to reorient us around the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and Lord, to bring us here to the table, uh, a table where, you know, you don't make demands of us, but you remind us that in fact, all the demands have been met for our redemption. Or you again, you know, call us to praise you, to, to, to kind of say, you know, um, who, oh Lord, you are great among the gods. Lord, let's be honest, we have chased after the gods this week, and if we're fortunate, we have felt, we have tasted the bitterness of that. So Lord, I pray that as, you, um, as we come to this table, that we would come tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and that our lives would be sustained and that we would be built up, not just for our own benefit, but for your glory and for the good of this city and even the world, that you would be at work through the church, bringing glory to your name so that as we are parading around Santa Fe, people would see what a great salvation, what a great God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.